This is The Sidebar, a podcast by the New York Association of Black Journalists. I'm your host for this episode, Femi Redwood. Most of us know by now, the Thanksgiving stories our teachers told us as children are not exactly true. In recent years, there's been more mainstream conversations about the colonialism and violence indigenous people endured. And this is causing more families to reconsider the way they approach the holiday. But as I was reflecting on this episode, I realized I don't know a single black family that celebrates Thanksgiving. However, every black family I know has a Thanksgiving dinner. This sounds the same, but they are very different. The first centers around this sort of patriotic myth where genocide was turned into a cute Disney movie. The other centers family, given or chosen, and traditions. Maybe the traditional way your mom, grandma, or great-grandma cooks greens. Maybe the tradition of our language, specifically AAVE. And sadly, the tradition of food not being ready until so late in the evening. But I digress. Today we are celebrating the Black traditions that surround Thanksgiving. First, there's food, obviously. We're talking to Dr. Psyche Williams-Forsen. In addition to being a professor and scholar of African-American life, she's written a ton of books on food culture, including Eating While Black, Food Shaming, and Race in America. She breaks down the history of soul food while also challenging some of the negative beliefs about African-American cuisine. The other aspect of Thanksgiving is the cultural moments that make up the experience. It might include a spades game that will undeniably end in an argument. It might include who's fixing a plate for who and why is this a big deal. And it might include hours and hours and hours of hearing historically black phrases, like when someone tastes your collards and immediately says, you put your foot in this. And this is where we begin. Authors, journalists, and podcast hosts Travel Anderson and Jared Hill just released their new book titled Historically Black Phrases, from I Ain't One of Your Little Friends to Who All Gonna Be There. Travel, who's a board member for NABJ, and Jarrett, who's the president of the Los Angeles chapter of NABJ, connected with me for an insightful but also hilarious interview. The book, which I am obsessed with, celebrates hundreds of Black phrases while also offering historical and social insight into the value of our language. I don't know any Black family that actually celebrates Thanksgiving, but I do know a lot of Black families that get together on Thanksgiving. Not really the same, but kind of, sort of. I wanted to talk to you both because your book, Black Sayings, is rooted in Black traditions. And I hear the most Black traditions when I go home for Thanksgiving. And for example, my mom or my sister pinches my hips to tell me I'm hippie, which why are we still doing this? But here we are, <laughs> Black traditions. <laughs> So that said, that said, in the spirit of Black traditions, tell me about the book Black Sayings and what inspired you both to write it. I love that you have colloquialized the title of our book to Black Sayings <laughs> uh, because the the full name is Historically Black Phrases from I Ain't One of Your Little Friends to Who All Gonna Be There. Um, but I love, because that's what Black people do. You know, Black people will rename a thing 
Okay. <laughs> House of Dragons. Apparently, there's a the somewhere in there. It's not House of Dragons. It's House of the Dragons. The Dragons. You know? Exactly. That's what we do as Black people. So I love that that's our start. But Historically Black Phrases from I Am One of Your Little Friends to Who All Gonna Be There is a book that Jared and I have co-written. It is a dictionary of these phrases that we all... Everybody who got a Black mama in particular, okay? If you got a Black daddy, mm, unsure. Wow. But definitely if you have a Black mother, okay? This, we calling it like we see it, all right? I would argue that it's not, but we'll get there. Yana Van Zandt said, call a thing a thing. <laughs> that, that's in the book, by the way. <laughs> it is. Come on, reference. Um, and so it's this dictionary of these phrases that many of us have heard growing up, some that we as, you know, young Black millennials have created ourselves that define how we talk as Black folks. And then we've also got some essays throughout the book as well in which we interviewed, this is where the journalist side of things came in where we interviewed a host of black folks actors drag queens journalists professors etc about their memories feelings experiences talking black in this particular world it's funny that we're talking about like the way that black folks like will change up the name of something or whatever because my mom i i talk about in the book my mom has a history of pronouncing words and names just however the spirit has moved her and I'd be like, that is not what that word was. That is mm -hmm. not what her name was. I don't know who that was, <laughs> what you're talking about, right? And like, it's so interesting because it's so like specifically my mom, but also like not unique to her at all, you know? Uh, and so it's been part of the conversation as mm -hmm. well. And as we're even thinking about the holidays, like this has been a seven year process for me of like from the first idea to it actually being available in stores. And like so many of my Thanksgivings and Christmases and family gatherings and birthday parties, I've been like over on the side taking notes of like, oh my God, I have to make sure this phrase is in the book. Oh my God, someone said blah, blah, blah. And like, I got to make sure that that's in the list. Um, we can talk about the trauma of the last year and the years going forward where every time I remember something that's not in the book that I'll be wow. like, oh my God, we didn't include this. Um, but it's it's been a fun process. That just means we can have a volume two and a volume three and a volume four, et cetera. Look at that. Trauma turning into money. <laughs> Listen, shout out to our friends at Penguin Random House. Hopefully they hear you. Um, but like it's been it's the holidays have been such a time for me to like be thinking about this book and how I wanted to discuss this in the world and and being reminded of phrases that I hadn't thought about. You know what I love about this? There is a connectivity that it highlights of Blackness where it doesn't matter where you fall along the diaspora line because my mom is Jamaican. She spent half of her life in Jamaica and the other half in England and then here in America. And as you talk about your mom just creating her own pronunciations, my mom doesn't say scones. She says scones. And I'm like, nobody says that. And she I've heard to that. Say that's how they no, but, but that's not, she will try to say that's how they say it in England, which is not true. You're making up a word. What are you talking about? So it's nice but to see, know, like, this, I love this. I've heard scones, but it's only been like a handful of British people. And I'll be like, well, now what are you doing? That is not what that word is. <laughs> that's not that word. They are, they are lying. I don't believe it. But even like, um, do you have McDonald's money? 
my Jamaican mom would love pulling out, do you have McDonald's money? Literally. Of course, no. Now, I should tell you, Travel wanted to have, do you have McDonald's money as one of the t- the phrases in the subtitle. And we were like, that feels like a branding issue. So we're not going to do that. But like, it's, <laughs> right. it's one of the ones that Travel has often, when we were first like starting to talk about the book, Travel would reference that one. And it was like, that's actually not in the book because of McDonald's. But like, it's like, oh, it's okay. a common phrase of ours, right? Like, it's a, do you it have is. McDonald's money? Do you have Burger King money? Do you have Chick-fil-A money? Whatever it is, right? Do you have Macy's money? Do you have ASOS money? Like, right. whatever the thing is, do you have money for that? <laughs> then then no, you ain't getting nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. And no, the answer is no. Because how, how do we have money? We didn't have Listen. jobs. We were literal kids. <laughs> like, I am your dependent. I get my money from you. <laughs> right, right. What is your parents' reaction to this book? What are they telling? Oh my you? god. Um, my I'm actually interested in hearing Jared's response to this. I don't think anyone has asked us this question yet. Um, but my family is. I think the funny part, the things that they're recognizing now as they slowly make their way through the book, because it's one of those that you can like pick up and come back to, you know, um, in a very you know coffee table book type of way. But as they make their way through and reading their names pop up in the examples that we've written for all of the different phrases um and to see that some of the some of the situations that we bring up in those examples are true to life situations you know that perhaps you know if you knew my mother's name was what my mother's name was and you read that you might want to call cps on her you know what i mean <laughs> um, <laughs> And so it's been, for me, funny just to, like, hear them be like, now, why would you put that in? I'm like, listen, it's an inside joke, okay? Only you and I know that this is rooted in my trauma as a child, and we can keep it that way. So that's how my family has responded to it. What about yours, Jared? I, it's funny, like, there are plenty of moments in there where you're like, well, only my therapist knows what this reference is, so if you start talking about it, then you know what it was, too, right? And everybody else will know. Um, my parents have been interesting. Like I, uh, at the risk of getting deep on you, like my parents have been like really like excited about this and like trying to like, they, my, I'll give you an example. So like when I got the first copy of the book, I had gone home that next weekend for something that was happening. And I brought the book because I knew my dad would be super excited to see it. He's been kind of like involved in various different steps of the process, showing him the edits, showing him the layouts and all that kind of stuff. So I knew he'd be excited to see it. And he was like, oh, my God. Like, I just kind of sat it down and like waited for him to notice it. And he was so excited. My stepmom, she was excited to like open it and and turn every page. And like every phrase, there's 220 some odd phrases in there. She would like say the phrase out loud and then look at me for reaction. And after like 10 of those, I'm like, I don't know how many faces I'm supposed to have. Right. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. (laughs) Right. 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 But it's been fun because my mom ended up doing the same thing. My stepdad ended up doing the same thing. And like, they're like excited to go through the book, but then they also recognize themselves in it. Right. I wouldn't call this book autobiographical at all, but like maybe semi in some moments, right. Where we're kind of talking about moments that we've had with our friends or our families. 
Um, and so they've been excited about it. They've been like, every time I talk to them, they have something to say about the book that they've, that someone else asked them about it or that they sent it to someone else. Or my mom is like, oh, your grandmother got it and so-and-so got it and I sent it to so-and-so and I'm buying these for gifts and stuff like that. So it's been a really exciting process for them. They are really great gifts. One of the things that I like about it is a lot of what you just spoke about, uh, being able to pick it up, pick it down. Um, it's almost like this very much walk through memory lane of the happier happy, traumatic, whatever mm -hmm. parts of your childhood, but just very much that memory lane part of it. One thing I did like about it is, and is the fact that you all implemented some of the hows and the whys in your conversations with drag queens, journalists, everyone else. Talk a bit about why that was important for you to include. I can start there. I started this off as Facebook posts, like describing what fuck boy was when a nigga had pissed me off, right? And I was like, I know exactly what this is, <laughs> right? Um, charge it to the game and like all these other ones that I was just kind of like defining them, right? right? Um, and so I have my perspective on like what these things mean. And then Trayvell and I started working together at NABJ here in Los Angeles as uh, president and I was vice president. And like we would host plenty of things together and which, you know, kind of really spawned our show, uh, Fanti, which is available wherever you get your podcast. And so we we would be working together in all these different capacities, and I would hear how Trayvell would talk about something and or how we would both approach the same thing so differently. And it started to really open for me like, oh, it would be even better if we had more perspective in this book, right? And so then bringing mm. Trayvell onto the project really added another lens. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm a tall, light-skinned Black man from the Bay. Trayvell has had a completely right. different experience mm -hmm. coming from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, right? right. And Praise so we Lord. have, I'm not even doing this with you, um, but like, but we've had, <laughs> we've had such different experiences. And so that, that added another layer of value and perspective and depth into the story. And so then being able to, into the, into the book, into the definitions, into the, the ways that we talk about translations and def, uh, and, uh, and how you pronounce something. But then we wanted to like get more perspective from other people for the essays. So we have these essays where we're talking about code switching and the ways that it's shown up in our lives, or we're talking about how queer and trans communities have influenced Black culture, which has then influenced larger culture. We do that same conversation around Black church and how Black churches influence Black folks in such a significant, profound way. More than 95% of Black people believe in God, right? That's a huge impact and a, and a really significant piece of data. That means something about, about how we show up in the world. And so getting to talk to other people about their experience of Black church and how it showed up in their world or their experience of code switching and how they felt when they're doing it and why they're making a choice to do it differently now, or they, they know that they're doing it in certain ways or other people who like we talked to Kaylin Allen, who talks about the way that I speak is my brand, right? I'm not code switching. I have to be me to be me. Right. And so it was really, really valuable for us to be able to talk to different folks and get different perspectives to be able to color the, the story a little bit more, because we know that we we are a diaspora. We have many different perspectives to bring into the world and not just the handful of folks um, that are part of the book, but so many more. Yeah, because. Right. Even though everybody who has a black mother has been said, has been told, do you have McDonald's money? Black people are not a monolith, right? And we know that, you know, there is language that folks in the Northeast right. say that when they come down South to the AUC for college <laughs> right. and they start, you know, doing a clickety clacketing, 
us. We was like, what, now what, what is that word? Mad? You're using mad as a unit of measure here? Like, you know, you, you, you is mad cold, you know, or, or dead ass? Hmm. You know, right. those are like regional phrases, right? That now many of us know because of the, you know, just cross population of, of communities. Um, but like, you know, that, that is why we needed to interview all these different people. And so, like I said before, we have, you know, Kaylin Allen as a, you know, social media influencer. He's from Kansas. You know, we have Danielle Pinnock, who is from the East Coast, but her her parents are from the islands. You know, we have Marquis Richardson and Tiffany Boone, um, who are Midwesterners, I, I believe. Um, Detroit. Marquis is from uh, LA. Is, is, Marquis is from LA. So we have Bob the Drag Queen, who is from Georgia, but lives in New York City now. Um, who else? We have a lot of our journalist friends, Sharjah Sell, um, who's from Chicago. She gives she gave us one of my favorite <laughs> quotes in the book, which is something that she was told when she was younger, which was that Chicago niggas ain't nothing but Mississippi niggas with coats on. <laughs> which, wow, yeah, you know, um, and and which is a real. Which is a really interesting. Yes, like, we no, laugh at it. So but let's interesting. break that down. Right. Yes. Right? That's, that is the great migration. Right. Right. That is the great migration. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like anyway. So you know, I think that's where like the journalistic part came in for us was like being able to kind of trace that type of history through kind of the everyday you know experiences that we have had being Black folks in this world you know, navigating language. Um, and so it was a lot of fun to like have those conversations for sure. Okay. okay. I will point out that I was not a part of those conversations, but it's fine. I'm not thinking about it. You know, we're we going to get you. You've already given us a second, second volume edition. that we have okay. to do now. So we will be make sure, we'll make sure to reach out. Thank you. Thank you. Love that. So I love, love the book, but I also have mixed feelings about this book. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just hold on. Hear me out. You know, got the book. Uh-huh. Uh, I had my very white wife, very white, read some of the book, some of the sayings she knew, some of the sayings she did not know. But there was a mm-hmm. second where she was reading it, and I was like thinking about how many things are, you know, AAVE is now called TikTok language or whatever they call it, mm-hmm. Gen Z speak, something like that. So I was thinking, you are giving away all of our secrets to white folks, but at the same time, it has been happening forever. So why not profit off of it too? But I just, I don't know how to feel about it. It's like you gave them, you gave them a book. Like you actually literally gave them a book. Yeah, we did. Do you want to start or should I? You start, friend. Well, so it's interesting because like we've had, this comes up in all of our interviews, which has been really great. And it was actually one of the first things that gave me pause after the book announcement came out two years ago. One of the comments was like, oh, so you going to tell all these white people, you going to give them, give away all of our, our information or whatever. And I was like, oh, 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 uh, like it, it kind of like startled me. Right. And then like, even in this conversation, right, like we've had conversation around dead ass, around mad, around John, around all these different things. And they get used in culture all the time. Nobody was saying to Beyonce, like, how dare you say I'm dead ass at the top of I'm, of I'm that girl. And nobody was saying to to Quest Love, how dare you put John in, on every film? Like, people are going to take that, right? But, like, we have these conversations about this because it's in a book, mm. right? And we feel differently about the idea of, like, a published word. 
we feel differently about being able to hold it in our hands and 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 being able to like discuss it right we have like such an attachment to secrecy in black culture which is so interesting to me i was having a conversation with someone today in my family about someone else going through through like a, an illness and it was like oh have you talked to them and i was like no every time i talk to them everything's fine like no i'm fine every the my body's fine the fine the the marriage is fine the church is fine this is fine everything's fine and like it's a very common thing in black culture to kind of keep things to ourselves right and so when we were writing this book i was thinking about this through the lens of like i really want us to write into history the way that we've been speaking mm. right the conversations that we've been having and how they've been showing up and the reasons that we've been doing some of these things white people have taken every single thing that black people have done and tried to do it right and like we use this reference oftentimes from dream girls because it's me and Travel. But like I in Dream Girls, there's that moment where they're singing, got me a Cadillac, Cadillac car. Right. And it's like it's so whack and lame and generic and sterile. But then you hear Jimmy Thunder early hit it and you're like, oh, oh, that's mm. what that. Song was right. right, and so it's the same thing. Like mm. black folks have been doing this forever. They have taken our recipes, they've taken our style, they've taken our hair, they've taken our this, they've taken our that, and like we can't be worried about the idea that white people are going to do something with it because that's the history of whiteness. You better tell me in an educated way that's silly. Go no, ahead. No, 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 because it, it's not silly. No, I mean it's <laughs> it's something I've thought about and been worried it's about. Absolutely not silly. Absolutely not silly. Silly, and I think you know the reason why we get a form of this question in every single interview we've been interviewing with Black people, to be clear, um, <laughs> um, is because of this, you know, um, we all, I think, feel in some ways responsible for the culture, right? We want to make sure that we can still have something that is ours, because increasingly, them people, you know, they snatching it all up. You know what I mean? And so I think that's where, that's the, the, the place from where these, these questions come from. But I respond to them by saying, quite simply, that, you know, memory is faulty. Memory is also very finite in so many different ways. We as Black folks, we have this oral, you know, word of mouth tradition, right, that we carry on in so many different ways. And that's beautiful and that's wonderful um, and, and is, you know, culture in and of itself. But there's a flip side of that beautiful culture in which so many of our stories aren't written down. And so when you, for example, lose a generation of Black gay people, Black queer people, you know, to AIDS, hmm. you know, and in losing them, you lose that history, that context, that, that import, right, that information, that history, you know, communities end up having to, quote unquote, start over, Um and hopefully you have some elders who are present, such as the, you know, first mothers of the houses in the ballroom scene, right, who, who, who survived, right? And they're able to continue those little bits of pieces to where now something like shade or reading or snatched or fierce, right, are normal parlance that they say in the fucking pulpit now, 
You know what I mean? <laughs> My, how far it has come. <laughs> I think when you think when you think of our language in that type of particular context and that our history in that particular type of context, it becomes important for there to be a text because they're killing us still. There is a renewed effort to erase our history and our experiences being taught in schools. And I can go down a very long list, right, of our sociopolitical realities that we are navigating as Black folks, as queer people, as trans folks, as historically excluded communities. And so I say that the response to that is not to just continue spreading our culture and wisdom via word of mouth and via lived experience, but to also have a book, right? Um, something that is tangible in a very real way um, that can be a forever reminder, right? In a forever tool of memory um, in terms of just how brilliant we are as a people. Um and yes, there will be white people who swag a jack and culture vulture and all of that other stuff that the folks say. Um, and yet to me, that is still not a reason not to do it. Um, and we do include a little, a little disclaimer uh, in the introduction, at the end of the introduction, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to any white people who may find themselves stumbling on historically black phrases. Um, and we know many of them have. Um, and guess what? Because I want this book to be successful, I need many of more of them to do the same. Um, but we do include a disclaimer that like, you know, this isn't a book that's interested in, you know, being kind of co-opted by them in that particular way. But I think it's one of the, one of the, one of the mantras that we now say as a community, as it relates to, you know, whether white people can say the N word or not, which is, you know, you can say whatever you want to say. You just got to be ready for the consequences that may come <laughs> as a result of it. And I would say the same as it relates to our, you know, white siblings who might find themselves with this book. You can do what you want to do, but be ready for whatever consequences may come as a result of your, you know, co-optation, <laughs> okay, and appropriation. I be making up words, y'all. You know, that is a uniquely black thing. We talked about that. Okay. We talked about that at the beginning. Of the I was going to let it go. Full circle moment. <laughs> it's a full circle moment. We'll take it. We'll take it. That was a very long answer. I'm so sorry. Well, I would I would lastly just say there, though, because I, I had a friend who's a white woman who got the book and she was like, I don't know how to ask this question and I'm not sure if I should ask this. And, you know, like... <laughs> Oftentimes when white people are talking about anything to do with blackness, like their shoulders go up and they're like, I have a question about like, you know, the thing. And I was like, what's the question? And she was she was saying, like, what do you want white people to take away from this book? Like, what am I supposed to like? How am I supposed to engage this this context, this content that's not necessarily um, directed toward me? And like I said to her and I often say to white folks about things like that, like with this book specifically, it gives you an opportunity to learn something right? Like there are plenty of things that you learn about that are not for you. 
there are plenty of things that you have awareness about that are not for you to use and go and go be a part of, but to have some awareness or understanding or education about. And so that's how I think about this book for for folks who are not black, because this book is definitely written with the black gaze centered, um, but the understanding um, that it is going to be read by all kinds of different folks. And you know, last thing, last thing, for real, for real. And you know, because this just jumped on my spirit, and so I feel <laughs> led to share. You know, for for the white people who will find themselves with their hands on our book, um, who might be, you know, um, inclined to to ask what they should do, you know, I think about one of my hopes is that more and more different types of Black folks will be able to show up in a variety of mm-hmm. different spaces and talk how they talk. Right right? And be understood. And so perhaps maybe one of those, you know, white people who are statistically more likely to be well off than the black people who talk like how some of us talk, right? will see this book, see some of these phrases rendered as beautiful and as classy and as Mm. astute and erudite. I don't know if I use that word right either. um, As this book is, and they'll be like, oh, this community's language is in a book. It's been studied. It's been researched. One of the people we interview in the book is Dr. Ann H. Charity Hudley. She's like our linguistic consultant, if you will. She's a, a, a PhD uh, researcher, linguist at Stanford University. Um, and, you know, she talks, she gives us that very academic, you know, studied perspective. But hopefully one of those white people will be like, the next time they see Shabudakwe Jenkins, you know, show up in the office for an interview, right? And they won't discount her because she acting and talking like how we act and talk sometimes. Right, right, right. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. That could be a just a little bit, you know, pie in the sky vision. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the reality is, you know, just because we talk how we talk, does not mean that we're unprofessional right. or uneducated or whatever else we have. Many of us are are unlearning, right. you know, right. in adulthood as a result mm-hmm. of the ways that we've been indoctrinated in this particular society. And so, you know, Historically Black Phrases, available wherever you get wonderful books and bad books too. You can also go to historicallyblackphrases.com. Talk about a plug at the end. Last question. Last, last question. In the spirit of all of the food many of us will be consuming over Thanksgiving, what is Mm -hmm. your favorite Black phrase that is connected to food, even if it's not about food? So like something in the Mm. buttermilk ain't clean. Not about food, connected Mm. to food. Love that. Love that. Oh, I got mine. I'm just going to say this is one of the words that we have in... in um the chapter on it's called kitchen sink no this is in our units of measure chapter and the the phrase is you know is a corner and anybody (laughs) who is at a thanksgiving table you know and somebody has you know gone for seconds and thirds and fourths and all they've left (laughs) in the pot of college greens is a corner that you can't you can't do nothing with that baby that's that's two spoons phil why is you why did you leave a corner in the so that will be mine for this holiday season i just want to say in defense at least something was left okay cut it out at least 
Some cut it out. Because sometimes you just want a little taste on your tongue. You know what, Femi? Cut it out. You know what, Femi? <laughs> At least Mm-mm. something was like. <laughs> you know how you watch. You know how you watch like a true crime documentary and like someone's in their interview and they say some shit and you like, oh, you're the one that did it, right? Uh huh. I'm just like, uh huh. Yeah, we have in the in the book we have a corner and a swallow and they are next to each other because they're related but not the same, Absolutely. right? So like, Absolutely. Sammy's definitely the one leaving a corner or a swallow mm-hmm. in the refrigerator. But your your wife. Right, exactly. But your wife might not call it that when you pull such stunts, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. again, sometimes you just want to taste a little. You just need to satisfy that taste. You don't need to be Just a little nibble. Yeah, that's it. So really, you should be thanking people like me is what it boils down to. Thank me. If if this were on the ID channel, we'd be zooming in on you slowly as you talk there. Like... Y'all know what this is. Oh my God. Um, to answer your question, mine is related to food-ish. Uh, it's on uh, page 264, who made the potato salad? Mm. Now, that is obviously about food, but it's also more than just about the food. You want to know who did this because you know how they did it or didn't do it. You, mm-hmm. You're questioning whether or not their house was clean. If you're at the potluck at work, you might be like, mm, I don't trust they, they situation. Mm-hmm. I saw the Tupperware that mm-hmm. they brought in and I don't trust they lasagna. You know, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you just have some questions about what it is. So who made the potato salad is going to be mine. I love that. I love that. For what it's worth, I do not leave a swallow. I will, however, leave a corner. From the sweet potato pie to the collard greens, soul food is a part of our Thanksgiving traditions. And like its rich taste, there's a richness in its history. For example, an enslaved man invented the mac and cheese dish that will be on so many tables. His name is James Hemings and he was the enslaved chef for Thomas Jefferson. Long story short, in 1784, he went with Jefferson to Paris to learn how to cook French foods. Historians say Hemings tweaked the version of a French dish and turned it into the mac and cheese we love today. And this is where Dr. Psyche Williams Forson comes in. In addition to being an author and scholar of African-American life, she's a professor and chair at the Department of American Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. She's written several books, including Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America. As we think about Thanksgiving, and the idea of tradition. What is the thing that first comes to your mind when you think about Thanksgiving traditions? You think about Thanksgiving traditions as togetherness, as a time to come together to celebrate, as a time to come together to enjoy good food and what we call commensality. And that is the sort of coming together of around food and drink and celebrating. One of the things that we often don't talk about, but that came up in the film Soul Food, are the tensions that coming together also elicit. I think we often want to overlook them, but for some people, <laughs> that's a, that's also a tradition. You're not going to have Thanksgiving without having X. And so I think all of that is part of the, the cultural fabric of, of being Black in America and celebrating these kinds of, of celebrations and traditions. When you mention the tension, sometimes the tension is connected to food. So for Mm -hmm. example, who is going to make the mac and cheese? Why is that a tension point? (laughs) I mean, it's a tension point because 
food is intensely personal. Holidays become a time to showcase your culinary prowess, your culinary chops, your culinary feet, if you will. I put my feet in that thing, right? There's a lot of tradition that goes into Thanksgiving. So there's going to be a lot of tension around who does what. Okay, you know every year, Miss so-and-so, Auntie so-and-so makes the rolls. I don't know why you're trying to be new. So-and-so makes the mac and cheese. So-and-so, this year we're going to have a fried turkey. That's why people say no experimenting. But in the fabric of our lives, Thanksgiving has a sort of sacredness to it that we celebrate. I'd love for you to talk a bit about the history of soul food. I think a lot of us, we understand the connection between the West African traditions. We understand the history that some of these meals were meals that our enslaved ancestors gave. But I think for a lot of us, our historical knowledge of soul food ends there. But there's a lot more to it. Here's the thing that is inc- it's very important to recognize about soul food. The foods themselves are foods that tend to be eaten throughout the South. Corn, butter beans, rice, the use of whole milk, whole butter, sugar, things of that nature. Okay. In the centuries between the time Africans arrived in this country to the time that they were freed and emancipated, the food systems were very varied. They were all over the place. And that was the case because enslavement was not a monolith. It was longstanding over many centuries in many states, meaning not all Black people were in the South, even though the largest concentration was in the South. But you have folks enslaved as far up as Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nebraska, you know, you name it, folks were enslaved. Depending upon where you were regionally, it would have dictated what foods you were most likely to eat. If you are in the low country, South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi, in that vein, you might be more inclined to have more rice-based dishes. You also may have had access to more cow, pig, what have you. If you're in the eastern seaboard, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, on up the eastern seaboard, Florida, you might be more inclined to have had things like fish, oysters, terrapin, you know, turtle. So that's one of the things that we have to recognize. We have, as a people, had our food culture shortchanged by several formerly enslaved um, narratives that said we got a peck of meal and maybe some offal or whatever was left over. Correct. And there were also people who were enslaved who had were able to manage gardens. Some were able to, um, there were certainly many Africans and African-Americans who understood the power of foraging. That means you can go into the woods and come out and pull out a whole handful of weeds or, or, or greens or herbs or what have you. There were trappers, there were hunters, there were folks maybe that had some kind of small utensil that they could use to trap, hunt, and so forth and so on. All right. So as a result, the food cultures vary. If you look at the ex-slave narratives, you will get some folks who are like, oh, no, we ate way high on the hog and other people who were like, we were hungry. So 
it's important that we first of all start the conversation with the food cultures were very, very disparate and very different. That's number one. Number two, we have to remember that soul food was first and foremost a concept. A concept. That is the whole notion of soul. Okay. This was a concept that came about in the 60s. And it came about with the work of Amiri Baraka, who was formerly known as Leroy Jones, who was a writer and poet of the beatnik era. And Mr. Jones basically said, hey, listen, Black people, he was responding to a journalist who said Black people have no consciousness and have no, no culture. Okay. And in that response, he said that Black people had soul food to their credit. But it wasn't just soul food. He was like, it's in our hair, it's in our clothes, it's in our, our music, it's in the way we walk and the way we talk, right? So he was in his collection of essays that's titled Home. Um, in 1968, Amiri Baraka describes what we know today as foods eaten by many people in the South. Grits, Hop and John, which is Black Eyed Peas and Rice. Fried fish, fried chicken, buttermilk biscuits, dumplings, lima beans and corn, string beans, neck bones to pork chops, sweet tea and lemonade, sweet potato or other pies and cakes, barbecue, anything smoky, everything from the hog. So he was naming those foods, but more importantly, he was talking about the ways in which Black people cook those foods, the way we manage them, the way we can go to work all day and deal with all kinds of carrying on and come home and still feel like I can whip up this, that, and the other just by looking at what's in my refrigerator. I can cook by vibration, as the late uh, anthropologist and culinary historian Verna May Grosvenor said, right? I know vibration cooking. I don't have to, even though measuring is definitely a part of our repertoire, many of us were trained in that. Also, we also can say, mm, it feels about right for me to drop this garlic in here like this. I'm going to add a little onion powder and a little dash of this, a little dash of that, right? So really what he was talking about was was a concept, a boasting concept to talk about the ways in which Black people use food. We use clothing. We use hair. We use all these things to symbolize Black pride, right? As Sam Moore from the group um, Sam and Dave, who wrote the song uh, along with Isaac Hayes, who wrote the song Soul Man, which came out in 1967. I'm a soul man, right? They're talking about pride. They're talking about I'm a soul man. I, I You know, deep on the inside, I know how to keep on keeping on despite what this country tries to do to, to me, to keep me from doing that. And that manifests in the ways in which we do get down food, if you will. Because for most people, Soul food is everyday food. It's the it's the stuff you got in your cupboard, you know. But I'm gonna add a little bit of this here. I'm gonna add a little pinch of cayenne. I'm gonna add a little bit of paprika. That's what turns it into soul. You see, so it's it's not particular foods per se. It's it's a concept that surrounds the food, and it's the way that we do it. It's the way we do a thing. That's what he's talking about, right? So when you talk about soul food at Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's the way we're like, well, if you ain't got no mac and cheese, I'm not sure if I'm coming, right? Because you got to have mac and cheese, collard greens, cornbread, et cetera, et cetera. And anyone, part of what makes the performance 
of our ethnic and racial identities connected is because if I ask you, what are you having? You're most likely going to say the same thing I'm having. Macaroni and cheese, collard greens, you know, either dressing or stuffing, depending upon where you are originally is how you call it, you know. But when you start coming up to me, oh, I'm at rutabagas, this, that, and the other, then we're looking at you like, oh, okay. <laughs> a little different, but you are right, but a little different. <laughs> you bring up a couple of things I didn't know. Number one, I did not realize that we hadn't even been using the term soul food until the 60s. But also, as you were talking about the regional differences, I started thinking about my father's African-American from the South. My mom is Jamaican. And I was raised for like half of my life in South Carolina. And so soul food was one thing. But then I thought about, as you were speaking, one of my really good friends who was from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, her Thanksgiving meal might include turtle, which certainly would not be on my father's plate. So it's interesting how you say that and just thinking about the idea of soul food from a much wider perspective than so many of us have been sort of taught to believe all of these years. The biggest danger to African-American people about our culture is that we don't, we've been misinformed about our culture. We have been fed what I share with people all the time, which is a powerful, powerful TED Talk um, by the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda DJ. We've been fed a single story about who we are as Black people. Um, I'm thankful to be part of the uh, group of, of scholars and leaders and thinkers who are helping to open up these conversations a lot more because it really does affect how we see ourselves, right? If we only think this is what we eat, it limits us in so many different ways. But to recognize, as you said, your friend has turtle on her table. I tell the story in my book, Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America, of being in Western Maryland for Thanksgiving one, uh, one, one season. <clears throat> and I went to a local church, black church, house of worship, and we had dinner after, and I was looking for the mac and cheese, and they had sauerkraut because they're right on the Pennsylvania border. So their influence of of what finds itself on the on the Thanksgiving table is very different from my sort of central, you know, mid-Atlantic region where, hey, you know, don't mess with the mac and cheese, right? So, I, I mean, it, but it's beautiful, the myriad dimensions of Blackness that get exercised. When I was part of a Ghanaian household, we had jollof rice for Thanksgiving, right? In addition to everything else, because my Ghanaian side of my family would come and, you know, we had jollof rice and sweet potato pone. It wasn't necessarily the actual sweet potatoes. It was more a sweet potato souffle, you know, things of that nature. So if we are nothing if we're not people of adaptation as well. I wanted to talk a bit about the ways that Black food has been shamed while also being celebrated with a different label. When I was younger, I remember always being so confused when I would go to a restaurant and it would be labeled Southern. And then I go to a restaurant and it would be labeled Seoul and they were the exact same food. They were just labeled differently. But as I ask this question, it also makes me think about the fact that 
again, soul food or what's labeled soul food is literally just from this one small perspective versus the plethora that you're talking about. Part of what I talk about in Eating While Black is the notion of a racial project, which is a sociological term that was introduced by two scholars, Michael Omi and Howard Wenant, in their book, Racial Formation in the United States. And what they explain is that racial projects generally frame how we operate with race throughout the world, okay? And that these projects become very normalized. So they become a part of our everyday life. So let me give you an example. It's a racial project that allowed a barista to call the police because a black man is sitting in a Starbucks waiting for his friends. Because why? Black people who sit around, are they, you know, are they going to do something? Um, They didn't order anything. They're loitering. They're up to no good. That's a racial project. An experience becomes so normalized in people's minds that when we see people, we just assume a certain thing. I see a black man walking down the street. I'm going to clutch my purse and cross to the other side of the street because this society has um, sensitized me or has, has brainwashed me or has trained me to believe that all black men are, going, are, are, are criminals. Okay, that's a racial project. So when you say you go to a restaurant and you see soul, it labels soul in one place and it's labeled Southern in another place, that's part of a racial project. It's a way of saying Southern, meaning it's going to be healthier for you. Soul is going to be bad and unhealthy. It's going to kill you. Soul, i.e. Blackness, is bad. It means death. It means all these negative things. Over here, same food. It means it could provide you with some nutrients depending upon how it's cooked. It means it's going to be tasty, but, you know, it may not be a seasoned. And it's certainly going to be better for you than soul food, even though in both instances we're talking about kale. Right? Um, because that's a perfect example, right? Kale had been eaten by Black folks since time immemorial. You may have a whole pot of greens, kale, collards. You know, maybe some turnips in there. You may get some dandelions, whatever. But when kale got discovered by white communities of 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 means, all of a sudden kale is a whole invented vegetable. Now it has these amazing properties that no one had ever thought of ever before in the 1990s. White affluent communities discovered kale. That's what I mean by these things become normalized. And so this is why I say to people all the time, do not dismiss food because its power is so far reaching to the point where the medical establishment will have us focus on food as the culprit of black, one of the major culprits of black death. Your food is killing you. It's the soul food that's killing you. The same foods that were eaten in the 60s are now today killing us. That begs you to unpack it a little bit more, right? What else has stayed the same since 1960? Black folks are still being discriminated against. We're still being redlined. Now more than ever being hunted and killed. So is it really the food or is it a number of systemic things that are also 
certainly at the top of that list that are pushing in on the food so that when we eat, no matter what we eat, whether it's oatmeal or collard greens and fat back or collard greens and smoked turkey or baked fish or fried fish or fried chicken or baked chicken, we may end up dying anyway because we are so plagued by the various instances in American society that don't desire to see us live. Thinking about the importance then of the importance of our foods, the importance of our recipes, I immediately think of like a decade ago, I asked my father who my father makes the sweet potato pie. He makes the best sweet potato pie. Like it's so much better than my mom's. And a couple of years ago, I asked him how to make it. He did not tell me to put eggs in it, did not realize I needed to put eggs in it. So I just had a pie of mushy sweet potatoes. Um, (laughs) But it made me think about the fact that so many of these recipes, I don't feel like they're being passed down, but I could be wrong. So are you seeing that these recipes are being passed down? And then how important is it that we pass these, these recipes down from one generation to the next? Yeah, I think I'll start at the end of your question. It's very important. Cultural transmission is what keeps cultures going. Right. This is why it's so important that we be in control of our own narratives, because when we repeatedly pass down the statement, black folks foods come from scraps. On the one hand, it can make us feel empowered that we're able to do these ingenious things out of scraps. Okay, I'm able to go in my refrigerator at any given time and see a few things and be like, oh, I can put this with this and this and this and this. Okay, great. But when you use the word scraps, again, it can make you feel empowered and it can make you feel like we've always only ever had nothing. And that is not true. There were enslaved people who managed to acquire a few things. They were few and far between. There were free blacks. There were people who educated themselves. All in all, never once was it a benevolent society at all. But do we have to start at the very basic bottom lowest? I mean, because that only leaves a little bit of room for having to move upward. But if you start from a culture, if you start the story as we were people of immense skill and ingenuity and creativity, and we knew how to cook professionally, and we knew how to cook um, for our homes, and we knew how to create potions and, and so forth. When you start telling that story, You're empowering people so very differently that they're inclined to push back. But as long as we stay in a space of, oh, yeah, all we ever had was one little thing, you know, this, then, you know, you're talking about a different scenario. Okay. So it's very important to pass on these these recipes because you had, even after enslavement, you had scores of Black women who uh, were forced to take employment in homes of other people that cost them great fear and trepidation, even as they worked in domestic capacities, because there was always a threat of violence, of, of sexual assault, of not being paid. And so it's important because you should know, actually, that recipe comes from Black folks, right? So that we don't just go through this life thinking we're borrowers and takers when we are the inventors and creators. And in fact, what happened was those things were borrowed, taken and misappropriated, you know, against us. Right. 
So that becomes a very important set of stories that we need to know. I had a young student ask me the other day, what happens in a household that is deaf and hard of hearing? How do you pass on recipes? And I said, that's fascinating. It's a fabulous question because you do have deaf and hard of hearing people in black communities. And I said, however, let's not forget that people have other senses, taste, smell, sight, touch, right? And so knowing how to do those things is the difference in some instances of survival, right? It's just the difference in being able to fend for yourself when you get out in the world. Well, I know one thing, if I don't have any other seasons, I know I need salt, pepper, you know, onion powder, garlic powder, maybe some paprika, and I can get all of those at the Dollar Tree, five spices for $8, right? Because as a college student or as a, as a young person starting out in, in life, where am I going to go? What do I need to get in order to be able to season this food to make it last for several days so I can eat it, so forth and so on? Is there anything else we haven't talked about that you think is really important? No, I just want to, um, I think, reiterate that food is very, very important for all the reasons we've discussed and that we should just allow ourselves to be when it comes to food. There are so many rules about living. You know, you should do this. You need to do that. Don't do this. Oh, you should eat over here. You should do this. Blah, 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 blah. That, you know, I, I think as, as human beings, we just need to find moments and times and places where we can just celebrate being who we are, eating what you like. You know, it's just like I remember the first Thanksgiving that I think I was like, oh, I'm not doing turkey. No, why? Because I don't like it. You know, it's, you know, I've, I've, I've cooked a big bird. I've cooked a little bird, you know, and, and after a while, I'm like, yeah, I think we're going to do something different. We're just going to do wings, you know, turkey wings, or we're just going to do this. It's easier for me. It's a, and, and, and I don't think we often give ourselves, especially as Black women, permission to just be and enjoy. You know, for some of us, the labor of Thanksgiving is part of the joy. You know, I remember my mom and dad sometimes cooking all night long and, you know, and, and then you wake up the next day, oh, the macaroni didn't turn out right. And it was just fine, but it didn't turn out right. Oh, this, that, and the, a, a lot of that is part of the fun and, and the, and the, and the memory of being in these spaces. But for other people, it could be like, oh my God, the holidays are coming. It's a time of terror. And, and that's very real. And so I guess I would just say that we allow all of these moments to inform Black American experiences because they're all very important. They're all very uh, relevant and they all make up who we are as people of the African diaspora. You know, and food happens to be at the center, no matter if you're Guyanese, if you're Haitian, if you're, you know, West, uh, West African, Ghanaian, if you're, you know, Virginian, North Carolina, wherever, we all have these coming together. And when we say we're going to have soul food, I just always encourage people to ask folks, tell me what that looks like in your house. Because even though we're both Black, it may be very different over there than it is over here. And I would love to hear more about what your traditions are so that we can share in those points of commonality and marvel at those spaces of difference. 
To follow Dr. Williams Forsen's work, including where you can purchase her books, go to psychewilliamsforsen.com. And to get a copy of Historically Black Phrases, visit historicallyblackphrases.com. Last but not least, if you need any guidance on how to cover Indigenous communities, the Indigenous Journalists Association has resources on its website, indigenousjournalists.org. If you like what you heard, give the sidebar a great review. A reminder that the opinions heard in this episode do not reflect the views of the New York Association of Black Journalists. For more information on NYABJ, visit www.nyabj.org. Music by Hosina Raps.